something that was key, I think, in Fred's journey with Pomerol and I think in my personal instances as well. Having that one large client to start is so important. It's very difficult to get lots of small engagements when you're trying to start a consultancy up. Life is so much easier having that one large enterprise client. I mean, it's obviously very difficult to get, especially being a startup effectively, but it is so important and makes life so much easier. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Dedicated On Air, where we bring together data experts to share their journey and impart their knowledge. This is Kate Strashny, the founder of Dedicated and the host of Dedicated On Air. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the Dedicated Show. Really excited about this topic this morning, we're going to talk about lessons learned in a data consulting company with Fred Heffer and David Anderson, who are both managing partners at Pomerol Partners. I truly can't wait to hear what they've got to say in terms of what it takes to start a consulting company, to run a consulting company. We'll talk about the highs and the lows of their journey. And we're definitely taking questions from the live audience. So, if you have questions about either running your own company or opportunities at Pomerol Partners or any questions that come up along the conversation, we're definitely eager to engage. And as you're joining the session, the other thing I'll say is we have a question for you. So we all know that COVID's uh, you know, impacted plenty of people in terms of their, their livelihood, their careers. So we want to hear from you. Has COVID hit you in any specific ways over the past year or so? In terms of how you're thinking about careers, have you decided to maybe go off on your own or if you've ever wanted to start a business, did you decide not to start this business because of COVID? So definitely share your thoughts. And if you just want to say hi, go ahead and do that as well. At this point, I'm going to go ahead and bring up both of our guests. So we've got David Anderson. Hello. And we've got Fred Heffer. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Kate. Thank you, Kate. Awesome. So um, I, I always love to start with introduction. So if you can both maybe tell the audience a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Cool. I can quickly start. Um, so David Anderson, I'm a partner here at Pomerol. I've been with Pomerol for just about a year now, actually. It might even be close to a, a year to the date, actually, tomorrow. So it's a, it's a year now. Um, but I've had a career in consulting before that in industry, actually working in a large consultancy back in BDO in Australia. So a little bit of working on uh, sort of the industry side, a little bit of freelance contracting. And the last sort of 12 odd years, I've been working in consult various consultancies and technology. Well, Fred. happy anniversary, David. Yeah, thanks. I, I, didn't, I didn't actually realize until you said that. But uh, yeah, I think first tomorrow will be a year. So. Survived the year. It's good, David. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, hi, guys. I'm, uh, my name is Fred Effer. I'm a managing partner of Pomerol Partners. I'm one of the co-founders uh, who started the business uh, in London in 2013. My background is finance. So uh, I was born and educated in South Africa, but I uh, came across to the UK uh, probably in 2005. Yeah, I started working in financial services uh, within finance. I worked at Schroeder's uh, Asset Management, and then I started my 
career in earnest in investment banking with Deutsche Bank. Started as a product controller and then worked my way up to a finance finance manager within the uh, prime brokerage and securities lending division. And yeah, that's uh, you know that's almost uh, where we, we started from. But uh, that's that's my intro, Kat. Awesome. Thank you so much. And really glad to have you here. Just wanted to check in on the comments. So we've got Alberto saying hello, Janine and George Ferrigan. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for, for joining us. If you're joining just now, we're talking about lessons learned in running a data consulting company with Fred and David. Looking forward to hearing all of your insights and a reminder to the audience that we are taking live questions. So if you've got questions, Go ahead and ask, and we'll try our best to answer as many as possible. So, Fred, you mentioned you were at Deutsche Bank, and I know Deutsche Bank has something to do with how Pomerol's, uh, Pomerol Partners got started. So maybe tell us a little bit more about that journey. Yeah, the, uh, the, the job at Deutsche Bank as a finance manager was really just... Uh, crunching the numbers and making sure that the uh, the the PL for the the businesses that I managed aligned and the balance sheet that was the primary job. The secondary job was uh, producing management information packs to my traders and my distribution teams. Um, you know, and that that's almost where we evolved from because uh, getting all of the information out of the trading systems and getting it in eventually into a PowerPoint format was a big job. You know, we had to get it from trading systems into access, run the queries and into Excel and then into PowerPoint. And that whole process took a long time. Um, we were exposed to a technology called ClickView. Uh, back in the day, I, I picked that up and basically got it down from, you know, I was taking four and a half days to produce those reports to half a day. And the rest of the time, I was just really looking at the numbers and really being an analyst. And I was asking my, my stakeholders, why are we trading with these counterparties? Why are we pricing the trades in this way? And that was just a function of being able to get the data into the right places at the right time. So I could yeah, spend more time being an analyst. And yeah, that's really where we were born from. Um, I was lucky enough to be, be given a budget to bring in a developer because I, I wasn't the world, world's best developer by any means, but I, but I knew the, the, the business pretty well and where to get the data. And so a guy named Hamish Emery joined me at Deutsche Bank. Uh, Hamish was a SAP ERP consultant. So we, we worked really well together. So I was able to, to translate the business requirements and give him instructions. We went from the finance department to actually being working on the desk and working closely with the, with the teams that we were supporting. And, as a function of working there, we uncovered uh, funding opportunity cost savings of $3 million annually. And wow. this was just uh, after the financial services crisis. So there weren't many big bonuses and promotions going around. So, uh, you know, we, we had to do something about it. You either get bitter about it or you do something. And we, we decided to, to start our own consulting company. And, you know, that's really where we started. We spun out. Uh, we took contracting jobs initially to fund training consultants and, and looking for that initial first gig. And we were lucky enough to find a contract with Bank of America Merrill Lynch and, and they're still a client. And yeah, I mean, from, from there, you know, think things evolved pretty quickly. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to front run everything, but that was really, that, that's how we started. You know, we, we always wanted to produce analytics and, and produce meaningful change, you know, both in a capacity as a, when we were employees, but going into consulting, you know, that transferred on, onto our clients. 
Thank you so much for sharing that uh, very inspiring story. So you, you were able to save them time from four and a half days, I think you said to half a day, right? That's already super impressive. And then you basically got to sit back, relax and look at numbers. That's every data person's dream where you can automate uh, enough of your work where you can actually sit back and try to make a difference. That's a really cool story. Thank you. So that was 2013? When you, when that you was, yeah, that was, that, that was, I mean, we, we did the, the click view and development, you know, probably uh, going two years before that, but we, 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 we took the plunge in terms of spinning out really in 2013 and handing in the resignations, you know, and saying, Hey, you know, goodbye. We're doing, <laughs> we're doing our own thing now. You know, so that, that was the first big step. So question for you, Fred, what were you thinking in that moment? Was it, were you scared taking that first step? Giving in your resignation. My back was against the wall, Kate, because that's sometimes you're forced in that position because you um working within finance. I mean, you you ha- I had to look at what my my prospects, my career looked like, and at that point in time, working in finance and investment bank was not the ideal place to be because a lot of the lot of the work uh, was being offshored. Mm-hmm. The lifetime of someone in finance, you really had to go up. And, and aim for the CFO level to get any any meaningful change in your you know personal wealth. So I either had to go over to the front office and work within product development, you know, where there's a almost a more opportunities to 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 increase the the, the personal wealth, make make it very blunt, or do something on my own. And if we looked at where financial services were and investment banking and, and, and probably Deutsche Bank specifically, it made more sense for me to, to go out on my own, you know, granted with the support of Hamish and, and having another partner, David van Rooyen, uh, help us commercialize the business. So it wasn't solo, which made it a bit easier. But also if I looked at the opportunity cost of staying where I was, it made mm-hmm. sense to jump. Was it easy? No, but glad to do something. Okay, thank you. So 2013, and then fast forward seven years, it's April 1st, 2020. How did David uh, come into this picture? We actually met David. That was that was later that first year. I think it was October, November. We, we spoke to David. He was working at Clima, and we were really just finding our feet in terms of networking, understanding what the landscape looked like with regards to to other data consultancies, other partners. Uh, we had an opportunity, I think it was Deutsche Bank, if I recall correctly, but we, we were talking about a subcontracting opportunity. Yeah, and that's where I met David for the first time. And then yeah, we stayed in touch through various conferences, uh, bumped into each other. I think there was always a, a mutual respect for capability and, and what, what we were doing. And the stars aligned finally for us to start working together in earnest. And yeah, I mean, uh, we, we, that, that happened last year. It was interesting, actually, because we, um, we, we did know. I mean, I think when we first, first met, you guys were either just about to resign or you had just resigned. And we'd said that we, we don't know how we we're going to work with each other, but we're going to work out a way. I mean, we always knew that somehow this was going to happen. We just didn't know how. We definitely didn't think that it was going to take better part of a decade to happen, but it was, um, yeah, it was so always on the card. Very interesting, David. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective of you know why you decided to join Pomerol last year. Yeah, I mean, I've, I mean, firstly, I sort of this this is my my third go at consultancy, third re- third real attempt. I think I've had mm-hmm. a couple of other sort of failure to launches, which I won't count as as attempts, but. This this is my third attempt at sort of 
trying to really grow a consultancy. And my the first one, I think that I, the first real one um, that we did was also very investment banking, uh, financial sector based. And it was also, I mean, it was uh, in the same sort of sector, it was ClickView based and we had a lot of opportunity. There weren't many players in the market at that time. And, um, you know, we did very, very well, but we were a very niche player at the time working in a very niche sector. And, uh, you know, I think we may get into this a bit later on, but we spectacularly failed in the end. We did very, very well for a little while and then very, very badly, as, as, as a lot of consultancies do. And um, that ended that story. And then I sort of my next move was into the same sort of field of still in that click world. Um, very European focused, um, not very capital markets led, but still, still a great, great place to be. And um, we ma- managed to have a lot of success there. But sort of back end, it was almost, almost a year, just over a year ago now, I guess. We had an opportunity to either go out on our own, uh, for myself specifically as well, to sort of do something from scratch or to join someone established. And, you know, there's, there's a risk and reward model that goes through your head, similar to what Fred discussed with with Deutsche Bank, I think, but on a bit of a different scale, I guess. And also looking at Pomerol had the right structure base, had the right clients. Um, it was a warm and fuzzy entity that I had known for for many years. The three, the three sort of founder owners of Pomerol as well were solid people that I sort of had a lot of respect for. Um, I think I echo what Fred said earlier. And from a lifestyle perspective, you know, a lot of this comes down to that as well. You know, Pomerol had sort of roots in the US, which is very important for me. And it was the path of least resistance, personal wealth slash opportunity. And I think, you know. Yeah, sometimes I think you want you want to take that risk and chance on yourself. And I guess third time the charm, right, David? This is your third. Uh... Yeah, yeah. There, there won't be, That's you know, I, I keep saying this to Fred. I mean. There's no fourth. Um, this is either this is either um, the win, or I'm going to do something completely different. I'm going to go work in a mine in Africa, or something very different. There's, there's no more consultancy in my life after this. There's better work then. Um, I think it's. It, uh, I'm going to go to some of the questions that are coming in from the audience. Uh, we'll start with this one from Silu. Um, how did you get your first opportunity? Let me share that. I think you mentioned Bank of America was one of your first yeah. clients. Bank of America was one of our first clients. That that was a function of our personal network, you know. And you can never, never really underestimate the the importance of having a robust network. So, um, we through one of our founders, uh, David and Royen, uh, we got introduced to a stakeholder at, at Bank of America at a, at a social event. We started talking about, and I think it was a sporting event actually. And they started talking about the 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 up. up the use of data within sports and you know how sophisticated that is relative to actual day-to-day working. That opened the door for us to have an initial conversation around, you know, how can we potentially use this analytics platform to consolidate some of the, the systems in that stakeholder's business? How can mm-hmm. we simplify the price-making decisions? And I think the first few conversations we had with, with, with the stakeholder was in a coffee shop. And we talked through what we could do, you know, and I think we actually printed out some of the dashboards that we could could design. And that was very early on in within an, an analytics. So, you know, the, the bar was, was pretty low and there wasn't a lot of people doing it. So we were able to get enough of the door open 
to do mm-hmm. a pilot. And that's really all that we need. Um, you know, once we get 20 days to prove ourselves, it's very rare that we don't go beyond that 20 days and and, and build those pilot applications into production. So it's a, yeah. it's a function of personal network, you know, just to, to answer it very shortly. But you always come back to that because as you evolve as a company, you look at various channels to produce more uh, opportunities and stuff. But sometimes you just have to go back to basics and you know, having a very good personal network is immensely valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think the personal network plays a success factor in almost everything you do. It's uh, just so important. There's a question here from Janine Jordan. She's asking, when you were when you were starting out, what was your first infrastructure setup like? How were you collecting data from customers and transferring the data to your company to actually do that work? Or were you working from their system virtually, especially considering the high regulations in finance? It was all on site. So that 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 made things pretty easily uh, from a from an infrastructure perspective. All all of the the servers, all of the the the, the software, all of the the administration was behind firewalls. So we were essentially onboarded as as contractors uh, to that specific client, uh, so we could get access to the systems and and work on that. Um, that was. Uh, that was fairly easy. I think, you know, with, with us doing more implementations and I'll, I'll probably speak to that a bit later around when, how we're evolving, but we've grown to set up our own managed environments and managing environments on behalf of our clients. But certainly mm-hmm. in the early days, you want to, you want to keep it as easy as and as frictionless as possible and get working and get billable as soon as you can. Yes. Um, that, I think it's also really, I mean, something that was key, I think, in Fred's journey with Pomerol and I think in my personal uh, instances as well, having that one large client to start is so important. I think, you know, it's very difficult to get lots of small engagements uh, when you're trying to start a consultancy up. You do, I mean, life is so much easier having that one large enterprise client i mean it's obviously very difficult to get especially starting being a startup effectively um but it is so important and makes life so much easier yeah actually a follow-up question on what you just said as any company starting out right we all need some sort of clients and customers that actually fuel our business what percentage breakdown of focus would you say let's say i'm a salesperson and there are big enterprise companies and the little ones that are likely easier to land but probably will give you more of a headache because you have to deal with so many different clients. How would you break up that uh, sales approach of targeting the big ones versus the small ones? I mean, I think there's risk on both sides of that, right? You can spend a lot of time, um, which, which is, you know, time is super valuable, especially when you're just starting out. You know, it's, it's spending a lot of time chasing lots of little engagements and um, that can become quite cumbersome and also very expensive and, you know, almost impossible to do. Whereas, you know, the the other complete side of that is you have one large or two large clients, but the risk there is huge, right? So you all of a sudden you start to scale your business based on the output of one or two of these clients. And if something happens there, and it does, I think that's that's one of the big lessons learned, right? Yeah, a client is not a client forever uh, necessarily. You know, that's that's the utopian view, and you know, we we all want that, but that's not how life works. So, you know, you have you have to, I think, in my view anyway, you have to start with these large ones. You have to spend time and effort to 
to get the larger clients. And then you have to diversify, right? You don't really want to have more than, in my view, 70% of your, your revenue sort of sitting with these top five, six clients of yours. Otherwise, the risk is immense and, um, you know, it, it's very, very difficult. But yeah, I think initially I would definitely spend my sales activity in, in that enterprise arena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a much, much bigger payoff when you can land one of those big enterprise accounts. And Fred, you were just, I think, alluding to something I wanted to touch on was that evolution of Palmer Partners and kind of how you're changing. Uh, I, I read an article in Business Wire, I believe it was about two weeks ago, about how Palmer Partners is restructuring and you brought on two two new partners. So do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yep. Okay. Now I can I can start the conversation. So we we were initially set up as a limited company in the UK um, when we started out and, and won the contract at Bank of America. Um, fast forward a couple of years, we added a few more US clients and a very strong US client base. Not not by design. You know that was it, it just happened that it was a function of opportunities. Uh, so in 2016, uh, I made a call to come over to the U.S. and set up operations, uh, come out to the Midwest and serve the underserved territories to get going. So we set up a, we had a, a similar type of setup. We had an LLC over here uh, to get going. Uh, we got another partner or a, a, a co-founder, uh, so to say, involved here in the U.S. Um, I think they Getting new people into the organization caused a lot of friction with regards to making those specific deals uh, because you you almost had to negotiate everything uh, on a on a case by case basis. So we were really looking for a mechanism to 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 take the friction out of that process to show people exactly what they will be getting if they join us and bring their their business and their client base over. So the decision to go to a partnership was was almost it was. We learned it the, the hard way by going through a few iterations of um, challenging is the, the 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 wrong way to describe it, but by learning by experience through making one of the deals, and yeah, and then we we made the call to move to a partnership uh, through through the support of uh, David and 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 to get him uh, fully fledged on and 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 gear up really this our operations to putting it in the hands of the people who drive the business. But yeah, David, I'll probably hand over to you there to, to elaborate yeah. in terms of how that, that transcends to what we want to do. Yeah, and I think, you know, one, one of the things coming across to Pomerol, I mean, the the good, the bad, and the ugly, I think, you know, Pomerol as a as a big growth story also suffered from some of the things that I've seen in in other consultancies I've been involved in. You know, you you have that split that Fred talked about when he went over to the US and all of a sudden there's a new shiny thing, there's a new territory a lot of the company focus goes into there and and you grow that and you start to create these mini silos, right? Regional silos all over the shop. And Pomerol, when I joined, you know, there's an African presence out of South Africa. You had EMEA out of London and you had obviously uh, Fred and the team out in the US. And, you know, I sort of joined and it sound, you know, you sort of feel like it's one company, but then you get into the the nuts and bolts of it and all of a sudden it's it's a US client or it's an EMEA client and it's an EMEA opportunity, not a US opportunity. And and you know, all the alarm bells start going off. And it's typical of these of a startup going through its its next phase. And you know, something that I've seen is this regional split or misalignment of interests 
can lead to huge, huge issues. And, and I've had that in, in every one of the companies I've been involved with in the past. And the idea around the partnership was exactly what Fred said. It's about getting everyone on a global scale to have the same interests, same alignment, and the same goals. And I think the, the important part was when we sat down around the table, everyone, regardless of what territory they were in, everyone had the same goals when it came to growth, when it came to servicing clients, et cetera. What we needed to do was to get our, all of our interests aligned. And in a partnership, I think one of the really important things is that you all, you sort of live and die by the sword, right? You all sign the same agreement. There's no founder, director, and there's no secondary sort of person involved. You all sign the same document at the end of the day. So you win or you lose together. And that was really important. And you can see, I mean, we, we did this back in, I think it was sort of early December, we finally made the transition, although we're talking about it for a while now. The cultural change within the partners, within the company itself, has been immense. It's, you know, we're taking on global projects. We're servicing some US clients purely out of the EMEA region, and we're servicing some EMEA clients purely out of the US. The utopian view is, you know, we're, we're doing this also, we've got lots of clients being serviced out of all three continents actually now within Pomerol which is fantastic to see. And that's the idea. That's This is what, I, I, in my opinion anyway, is leading to the growth that we're now getting. You've got partners aligned. You don't have these sort of uh, regional barriers anymore. And you just want to bring more people with the same values, same alignment into the picture. So, I mean, this is key for us now. We There's so, much, so many hours in a day. There's so much work that Fred, myself, the other partners can do. But we need more, right? This is how we're going to grow this machine is by getting more people like us involved. Yeah. And the, what, what I'll add to that is also retaining outstanding talent. So we recently promoted uh, two of our employees, Gonzalo Pereira and Scott Duthie, to partner in, in order for them to partake in the, in the equity of the business. If you want talented people to stay, you have to give them a roadmap to, to get to that point and to see how they can. Uh, take their their hard work and, and translate that into personal and family wealth. Uh, we also see this as a vehicle to attract the the right type of talent, the, the right type of people to expand into new territories and put potentially into new areas and new functions. I think that's very key. It's also looking after the people that helped you grow this business, because what what we often see in a, in, a, in a lot of our competitors is they, they there'll be a hierarchy of ownership. The talented people will go up to a certain level, and they won't they won't partake in you know a slice of the pie. We wanted to change that. We wanted to make sure that we keep on growing. We incentivize the right people in the right way, and now we can start attracting the right people if they want to grow uh, over and beyond what they've done before. Amazing. I think one thing you mentioned was attracting and retaining the right talent. I think this is even more difficult than you know, early on trying to land your first enterprise client is, is making sure you have the right people with you on that journey and incentivizing them properly to excite them to stay on that journey. So congratulations to, to Scott and Gonzalo for, for joining and becoming partners. I noticed that you made this change during COVID and we do have a, a question here about maybe you know some challenges that you might have faced or opportunities during these COVID times. Is there any correlation here at all? Did COVID help accelerate make this uh, to, to make this decision? I think in a way we, we were going to do this 
regardless of COVID. This was always the plan. I think when I spoke to to Fred and the team, you know, a, a year ago now, it was always on the cards because there was a a sort of growth um, that the guys wanted to achieve. Um, and they knew that they needed to do this by changing the model fundamentally from the three owner founders that, that originally started the business. So it was always on the cards. I think COVID gave us a lot of time to think about what is optimal and what's important. And I think so in a way, I wouldn't say that COVID made that change, but it definitely influenced the way that we went about the change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I, I read things. Yeah, I I'll definitely say it, it, it helped accelerate the change because we really had to focus back on the basics. We we lost a couple of sizable clients initially during, during when, when when people were panicking. And we had to look at what what is truly important. What type of people do we want to keep hold of, and and how do we keep the right people steering the ship? So we, we had to be very honest with ourselves. We had to make a few very hard decisions and, and letting some of our people go, and that that was a function of reestablishing and rebuilding the foundation into into a partnership. So sometimes sometimes you have these economic crises and and, and stuff, but if if you can weather the storm. If you can shape up very quickly and if you can change it, it sets you up for, for the next trajectory. So I wouldn't say we, we, we're out of the tunnel yet, but, but we've made some significant strides in, in, in changing our business and, and gearing for the future growth phases. Great. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. We've got a few more questions coming in here. One from George Firikin, and he's asking, what challenges is still out there for you to tackle? Kind of what's the very next challenge or, or maybe focus area on your plate? Lots, I think. I, you know, as, as again, as Fred said, it's um, it's a difficult time because, from a consultancy standpoint, I think that's echoed through a lot of consultancies globally. COVID sort of had a very bad impact very early on last year, and then things started to pick up. And I, I know from Pomerol perspective, we've had a sort of great end to the year, a really great start to twenty one, and. Um, Everyone, you know, you sort of, you talk to clients and it's the same same thought process, you know, when is the big explosion? When when are we really going to see the bottom of the dip? And um, so we're, we're all waiting for the impeding doom, which which hasn't quite come yet, which is which is good and it may never come. Um, but I think that, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of a macro challenge. I think from a Pomerol perspective, the challenge now is we've got the structure in place We've got everyone aligned. It's now actually executing it. You know, it's 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 not that difficult to get some paperwork in place and to restructure, and you can do that endlessly. But it's it's important to actually be able to capitalize on that. And you know, we've got some each partner. You know, that, that the good story is we've got new partners on board. We're growing. That's it's all very exciting. But the proof is it's sort of in the pudding now, right? We have to. As each partner in the business and all the teams under each of the partners, we we have to execute. We have to actually make sure that we fulfill our part of the partnership. So I can't have Fred or Scott or anyone else sort of doing the lion's share of the work and me just riding on their success. You know, you have this duty of care to each other. Um, And I think because you're so invested in this and you're so, you know, you're Fred... Fred's performance directly sort of looks at my life, my lifestyle, my the hours I work, my personal wealth. It's we're so entwined together that you know we 
we have to make sure that we're all pulling our weight. And, you know, I think that's the big challenge for 21 and on. The, uh, the fact is that the, the obstacles never go away. There's, there's, a, there's always obstacles to, to traverse, but we do divide them into good problems and bad problems. Um, at the moment, we're experiencing good problems. It's, fi- it's finding the right, right type of people at the right time for the right engagements. It's mm-hmm. making sure you take, uh, well, not making sure because you do make mistakes, but chasing the right uh, marketing campaign for a certain product that you want to promote. It's those types of challenges where it's it's good problems to have. That changes, you know. Sometimes, like this time last year, we we were facing very bad problems in terms of people not knowing you know, how are we going to deal with uh, reduced hours on this client. How are we going to deal with this setup? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's problems are good. Uh, you just need to put them in in the right buckets and make sure it's it's good problems that you deal with. But that's also a function of changing the structure. So that you do, you can look at the better problems to deal with, and bad problems arise when you don't tell enough. You know, and I, it's probably one thing we haven't really touched on is the the importance of the sales process, uh, mm-hmm. the importance of salespeople in in a data consultancy. When I thought of salespeople when I started this journey, it was very fuzzy. I didn't really have a lot of interaction, knowing what does a salesperson do over and above going out for drinks. You know, that was very, very, very mature. But as you start to to sell yourself internally, when I was at Deutsche Bank and when I started to sell my my, my services as an independent contractor and when I started selling uh, consulting services on behalf of Pomerol and for Pomerol, you, you know that you've really just, you've seen the tip of the iceberg. As you go from selling services to selling product to developing product, your appreciation for the process and the detail and the skill of a good salesperson, it it, it increases exponentially. You know, so that, so that's probably one one of the one things that I'd, I'd call out is it's always a constant sales is a, is a constant challenge. If if you don't get it right, you deal with bad problems, and yeah, that's it's not, it's not good. It's not good, but bad problems really help you test your partner partnerships right that's getting through the tough times is what um you, you tend to come out stronger but i agree good problems are better than bad problems and ravine uh likes that you said obstacles never go away fantastic attitude right problems and wrong problems he loves your your perspective and he's also asking talking about salespeople. um is does pomerol have hiring plans in the future Absolutely, is the is the short answer. So I mean, that, and that that's really at the crux of the partnership. Is now now we're set up to to grow by by bringing on partners. We're also mm-hmm. set up to to buy out uh, consultancies and and leverage and bring them into the partnership. So so the short answer is yes. We're always looking for good people um, that'll raise the average of our quality of service currently. And we're expanding and optimizing um, that continuously, and that spreads good problems, right? We, when he talks about good problems, what he says is what uh, the underlying message there is that lots of work, not enough people. So, um, you know, these are the good problems. So, yes, we're definitely. Uh, I think we're hiring at the moment in um, in me in Portugal. There's a couple of new starters, and I know there's been a new starter in the US very recently. So. Mm-hmm. Lots to come. 
Great. And where can people learn more about those opportunities? Is it on the Pomerol website? Yeah, I think um, we'll be pushing stuff through LinkedIn. Um, but if anyone has anything more specific, you know, Fred and I are uh, always there on LinkedIn. Drop us a line. Yeah, fo following our LinkedIn page is a, is a good starting point. So when, when we have specific vacancies we want to fill, we'll, we'll promote them there. Uh, but that mm -hmm. will also be uh, promoted uh, by the specific partners who are recruiting for the position. So start with following our company page and then uh, just make sure you are you, you connect with some of our partners or the managing partners and the, and the other partners. Uh, job postings will come through. Great. Thank you. So um, you, you both have mentioned Click at least a couple of times now. And I wanted to touch on, you know, since you guys, since you work closely with, with Click and you're listed as one of their uh, elite solution providers, can you talk a little bit more about that relationship and basically how do you go to market together and serve clients? Yep. No, I can, I can, I can feel that one. So we, we, we started our relationship with Click in, when we started. Um, and when we started, all we wanted to do is we just wanted to do services. We just wanted to to implement ClickView and, and we just wanted to see our clients make more money or save money. And that's all that we wanted to do. I think at, at that stage of where that the, the product was, it was almost selling it itself. So it was very, very easy to find opportunities from a services perspective. Uh, you basically just had to prove that you're, you're competent, you, you've delivered a few solutions and, and you'd, get, you'd get services work. I think that was also one of our, our big mistakes, probably not engaging with Click UK from a product perspective because the vendors are, are driven by product sales and by client success. And we didn't uh, invest enough, uh, certainly when we started in establishing a firm relationship with Click and EMEA. Um, and that, that, that was a mistake. I think we, we realized the mistake when we actually came over to the US because when, when I arrived in the US, I didn't really have a, a massive personal network. So I needed to find a way to generate leads and opportunities. And the, the, the path that we chose was to, we, we approached Click and they said, well, it, it's simple. If, if you guys start selling software, uh, you get the services that are related to that. So we, we had to evolve from just being an implementation partner to being a value-added reseller. And that mm -hmm. that was challenging. That was being able to sell your services being versus being able to sell the software is is different. So so we had to employ salespeople. We had to set up lead generation focused towards software. We had to really up mm -hmm. our game and our own CRM management and our commitment to CRM. And we, we eventually graduated from that pro program in, in 2019 by becoming a elite reseller of Click, a elite solution partner. But that was a function of a lot of hard work, a lot of um, uh, input from John Fitzgerald, uh, who's one of the partners in the US. So he used to work for, for Analytics 8. So he brought a wealth of experience over to us and, and setting us up with the right processes, the right structure, the right salespeople uh, to get the ball rolling. Um, we've then uh, basically taken another step forward in our evolution with our, our Click partnership. We've, we've started developing proprietary software. So we've developed a extension called the Writeback extension that allows data entry within within ClickSense. So if you can, if you're in an analytics dashboard and you want to update data, 
we've got a mechanism uh, that can allow you to write to a, a data source and refresh your data instantaneously. So that solves a lot of the dependencies people have on, on Microsoft Excel. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of use cases. Um, but yeah, that's that's gonna that's gonna pivot us to also having a technology partnership with Click uh, for that product in its own right. Uh, but the the lessons we learned by becoming a solution solution provider was was fundamental. I mean, I I had to change personally as well. I had to understand how this works and being able to appreciate what a what a good salesperson does and what a bad salesperson does and how to recognize the difference. And and we we were in that process now of taking the lessons that we've learned in the US and and pushing it back and, and getting getting the guys with, with David support and Amir to to adopt that and to to accelerate it and uh, yeah work work closely with our partners in Amir. Very nice. Yeah, that click uh, click sense right back extension that you mentioned. I'm already thinking that probably one of your popular use cases would be around forecasting. And I'm assuming a lot of your clients used something like this during the the COVID times when all of their forecasts kind of went and they they had to uh, reforecast and be, being able to input those uh, the, the numbers and update the data directly in your analytics dashboard seems a lot more straightforward to to, to look at the impact and uh, and such. Versus going to the spreadsheet and changing changing numbers for for impact. Uh, there's a, there's there's a lot of interesting use cases, but uh, but I mean the short answer is yes. I mean last year March, all sales forecasts and budgets were thrown out of the window, and <laughs> people had to change very quickly. And those budgets and forecasts changed on a daily, if not weekly, basis. So having a, a mechanism to do tactical changes that quickly is is yeah. is, 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 a, is a prime use case. Uh, I don't want to divert too much but I mean some of the other stuff that we're doing with the extension now is within client experience management uh, facilitating surveys getting feedback from people who consume our dashboards to understand mm -hmm. you know why they're using it or why they're not using it is it a, a function of user experience is it a function of enablement is it a function of trust so being able to capture data with whilst people are consuming analytics and, and putting a score on the experience is invaluable because that that data is actually forecasting your future consumption. So yeah. very interesting. Not not a use case that we we saw coming up when we we started that journey with uh, with a leading U.S. investment bank. But again, as as a consultancy, you're a, you're a function of your opportunities. And luckily, we did the networking to be introduced to that U.S. investment bank who was open to uh, doing a beta development with us. And now that's taken us onto a path with uh, with a technology partnership. Great. And you mentioned um, salespeople and how you appreciate them more. So question here from, from Alberto, and he's asking about common strategies for C-level buy-in during COVID times, or let's just say uncertain times for data projects, right? Because you really have to have the right uh, right skills as a salesperson to to get that message across. So do you, do you have some tips to share on this topic? I think to Alberto's question, I think actually it's not as difficult uh, as as you would think during COVID. I think the or during these times, you know, it's data was so important over the last twelve months. I think it's had such a highlight in in different ways through business, through the way people are consuming general COVID statistics and numbers just in their personal life. Data has just become ultra, ultra important and data literacy has become even more important. Um, so, you know, we've seen clients that originally 
sort of shelved some of their investment ideas when they were so uncertain around what COVID would bring because, the you know, it's the sort of human human way, isn't it? You sort of, you bunker up, you pull everything tight and, and you save just in case, you know, tomorrow is a worse day than today. And we saw some of that. But then we also saw a lot of very opportunistic C-level um, people in our client base. And they took the opportunity to actually see the slowdown in their own business or a difference in their own business to invest in that data sphere, to invest in getting data quality better, to get their reporting better, to enhance the product that they're selling. And, you know, in in the EMEA region, we saw, you know, clients come out of the woodwork that you would never, ever expect in sort of these times. You know, we signed a big, big deal with someone in the aviation industry. And you think to yourself, you're mad. Why would you possibly, in the aviation industry, go out and start doing data-led projects during COVID? And, you know, I spoke to the CEO there and, you know, he was It's very, very smart. You know, it's it's a slower time for them. They know that the sort of the impact and the sort of business will come back once COVID is over. And they want to be sort of in the pole prime position to take advantage of that. And they know that by making sure that their data strategy is aligned and ready for that, for the end of COVID, they would be able to take that market on and sort of lead. And it's been proven. You know, we, we've worked with them through through the sort of majority of 2020, getting that product ready with them. And they've they've gone to market with a whole new data initiative. And it's, it's amazing to see the sort of growth in sort of sales that they've achieved off the back of that once the world was ready to see that sort of the, the innovation. Yeah. yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, go ahead. Just to echo David's points, I mean, when we, before COVID, a lot of our work was, I would almost frame it as staff augmentation or where we were pro- providing support over and above what people could do internally within their companies. That shifted dynamically to us supporting uh, existing clients and new clients build their own products around data. So uh, supporting OEM clients, i.e. clients who use software to to build a product we've done a lot more services for those types of clients uh integrating work doing mashups on websites it's a the the work has shifted to be a lot more productionized and and product focused which is which is great because you can you you can wrap that up into a managed service uh there's recurring revenues there's subscription revenues so so it it takes it takes some of the pressure off with regards to just consulting revenues so now your your revenue base is is more stable. There's more recurring revenue, and and ultimately that that the company is more valuable because you're doing work over a longer period. And um, so that's that wasn't expected. We we didn't really know what was going to happen, but it's it's been an accelerated evolution into um, managed service and subscription services, which uh, which has been awesome. And and we saw that didn't we? The smart the smart C levels, the smart companies use that time to invest in data and you know they we're, we're seeing and they're seeing the reward of that now yeah that that's exactly my comment so i was just reading what ravid said you know he says it's been a learning experience for all of the companies and i agree it's it's the smart ones that knew that this was some downtime that they can use to invest into their data strategies and and building up their their products um david you mentioned the end of covid do you do you have some insights like when is it ending is it ending <laughs> 
I think I think I think it is. I you know I, I I'm very optimistic um, in my view. I think far more than Fred sometimes. Um, but we're seeing you know in our African business that's very um, leisure and hospitality based. We're seeing a little bit of a comeback there. I think people. I think the human race is generally optimistic. The North Americans are very optimistic. They're booking up African travel. Um, for the end of this year and into 2022, so I think there's a there's an optimism out there. Where in in the UK, I think we're seeing a lot of sort of acceleration in terms of people getting ready for for the future. Now, um, the North American business almost felt like it wasn't really touched. To be honest, I think uh, the guys, the partners in North America, had a, a decent 2020, and you know, there's. I think there's there's a general optimism that we could be coming to a to the end of it. I know there's you know throughout you know especially continental Europe and parts of Asia at the moment there's still a lot of this stuff going on. But um, I think with the vaccine drive, generally the governments are doing the right thing, and I think people are people are sick of it. People want to you know want to see want to see the the positives now. So I think you know. I, I, I am very positive that we are going to see the end of this very, very soon, if not if not earlier than most anticipate. Yeah, I'm very optimistic as well. I, every month I'm like, okay, just one more month. So it's it's been too many months, but um, yes, I, I love that you're still optimistic. Um, question here from a LinkedIn user to Fred. You mentioned the right back use cases. Is there, there a place that people go and learn a bit more about these use cases? Yeah, we've got a we've got a, a, a website dedicated to the right back. It's rightback.pomorpartners.com. So that that that's a dedicated site to it. You will be able to find links to it also on our, on our uh, main website, our European website, and our US website. Just follow mm-hmm. the link to the the Pomor right back extension. Uh, we're actually in the process of uh, a big update, and hopefully we can bring some some light to that and some of the new use cases can surface that that very shortly in in the next few weeks. So please stay tuned. It's a lot of big updates coming on that front. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting initiative because it, it supports a lot of the work that we do, both from a services perspective, because we can we can build more intelligent solutions for our, for, for our clients by incorporating those workflows. It also helps us um, sell software because we can bundle in the, the extension and make the the, the, the software more value add uh, if someone's looking at new software so there's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of uh, mutual interests that are served with that with that extension and, and a lot of value that can be gained through uh, through the right applications okay, great so right back at pomerol.com uh, right or pomerolpartners.com yeah right back to pomerolpartners.com and there's also links on our on our, on our, on our website. Yes, and definitely follow the Pomerol Partners company page because I know you, you post a lot of uh, all your cool updates on your company page on LinkedIn. Um, yep. Great. Going to my personal next question to you both. Let's say I want to start a data consulting company or somebody in the audience wants to start their own data consulting company. What what advice would you have for them? Oof. Um, don't I wouldn't say that at all. I think I think you need to know what you're getting into. I think um, it's not for everyone. It's definitely not for everyone. And um, you know, I 
it, in a very simplistic way, and it's definitely not this simple. There's a lot of the population that like to go to the same office at nine o'clock every morning, five days a week. You know what your job is for the day. Um, you feel satisfaction in achieving that, in doing better at that job day in day out, uh, and, and and I and and that's a great place to be. And then there's um, the messy people of the world who who get involved in the consulting side of things. And um, for me, you know, working on both previously, I've worked in manufacturing and retail for for companies directly, um, and it's. It's tedious for me personally. It's 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 very difficult to get up and do the same thing day in day out. I think in a consulting company, the amazing part is you get to help so many different clients in so many different industries and in different facets. You know, from finance departments, marketing departments, sales teams. It's so it's so much fun. It's so enthralling to be able to do that. Um, but it's hard work. It is really, really hard work. Um, your 40-hour week is um, almost comical. It doesn't exist, never has. Um, I think the burden of being able to do proper time management with your own calendar is, I, I think, still, I think after all these years, I'm terrible at it. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, it's a huge challenge uh, to be able to do that. Um you know, if, if you were going to go out and do it on your own, make sure, I think going back to where today's conversation started, you have a network, make sure you have one or two clients that you think will support you on the journey. And I think that's really important if you're going to go out on your own. Don't, you know, the worst thing you would do is quit your full-time job and try and support yourself without having a client or a set of clients to to back you on that on that journey. So, make sure you've got that. If you don't, I think joining an established consultancy and seeing if it's for you is is a great great thing to do as well. Um, there's lots of lots of consultancies out there, you know, focused on all different things from data to, you know, just generalist accounting work, law work, etc. So, you know, find one that you think matches what you would like to do, try it, and then um, you know, if you want to step out afterwards, do so. But um you know, in my in my view, we sort of had that point of uh, to make that decision a year ago when I when I joined Pomerol, and it was either on my own or it was joining someone established that shares the same values. And sometimes I think, as a collective, if you find the right people, and that's really important, if you find the right people with the right attitude that share the same values, it's much easier, much better to be part of a team that can sort of share that burden but you can also share in that success. So my, my advice is, you know, if you want to do it on your own, do so, but be prepared for a lot of hard work and and have have someone backing you, have some clients backing you. Yeah, yeah I just looking at my journey, I think you, you have to start with selling yourself and your solutions internally as an employee. So, you know, making sure you can communicate to your manager, what is your value add? then reaching out to different functions, to different regions in your organization so that you can articulate what is your value add, what is your unique selling point. That's almost how you practice on the job and, and build those necessary skills. So when, when you get externally, you know, it's not it's not entirely new. I think when, when I left Deutsche Bank, I first became an independent contractor and then I had to take what I learned to, to sell my solution internally 
I had to apply that to myself personally and, and get a contract. I think it was at uh, RBS back in the day to, as an independent contractor. Um, that made things easier because suddenly my my, my income, personal income, uh, you know, went up, and that that bought me more time to invest in building a company uh, with Pomerol. And then, yeah, the, then you put in extra hours, extra resources, without really seeing um, the the light, and back yourself to to find that first client. It's it's always easier to to spin out having an established client. That's not necessarily always possible. Um, so have have contingency plans. I think for me, it, I was fortunate because I could go in, into independent contracting. That was that was an immediate lift for me personally, and you know, I could get exposure to more companies within financial services. So um, you know, it it wasn't the worst case if Pomerol didn't work, uh, but. It also has, a, I also had a finite lifeline within finance and doing contracting in the finance sphere. It was only going to run for so long. So I had to, had to make this work, uh, both, both career wise and personally. It was, it was the only option. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think the last question I have for both of you today is where do you see Pomeroy partners in the future? And this question came up in the comments as well. Kind of what's, what's next for you guys? Um, I think we, you know, we're we're in a very good position in terms of growth at the moment. So again, we're very fortunate. We've, you know, we've we've had a little bit of growth in EMEA, and we've managed to open up another office in Portugal early this year. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to start more and more seeing the sort of territory expansion. Um, the US as well. There's there's a view that there'll be some movement there and some new offices created during during the year. So I think that's very short term view. But for us, it's it's just the growth story, right? It's attracting people like us that want to be part of the Pomerol story, that want to share share the sort of burden, share the success, etc., and and make this thing grow. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to one day be you know, rather than talking about the the few partners we've got to be one of a hundred partners and and compete against some of the, some of the big boys in the industry because you know we do the niche players in our world and not just Pomerol, you know a lot of our competitors, we do some really interesting work with really interesting clients. and um, I think the talent pool in your smaller consultancies can sometimes be a lot better than what you get in your sort of big in the big boys in our industry. I think that you know what what hasn't happened yet is the amalgamation of these. I haven't. I don't think we've seen the the super talented people come together and create something really uniquely different. And I think we've got an opportunity to do that with Pomerol. Yeah. The short answer for me is I don't know what it's going to look like in five years and ten years. If you asked me that question five years ago, I wouldn't have said I'd you know I'd be. Sitting in uh, in Kansas, uh, running as ma- managing partner of the US, um, but yeah, th- things change for a good reason. I think the reality is that the technologies and the nature of the technologies moving over from from perpetual to subscription based, they change so rapidly. It, it's very it's very difficult to steer a course around technology. Hence, why steering a course around the right people and a partnership is the way forward. So, I mean the. The short answer is that it's going to be a function of the the quality and the number of the, of the partners that we pick up, and and aligning that to 
to a, a near term, probably a three year goal is probably more realistic. Uh, but yeah, then it's going to be a function of numbers, you know, bringing on more partners, uh, growing that, that pool. Um, and hopefully the function of partners will bring us into exciting new territories and, and technologies for our solutions for our company. Plant. Amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Fred and David, for joining me here today and sharing all your you know, lessons learned and that journey. Such an interesting story from both of you of how Palmer Partners is, you know, has gotten to where it is today. Uh, lastly, you know, I also want to thank the, the live audience that joined us for you know, all your comments and questions. Really helps to make this conversation more engaging, uh, especially when we can answer some of your questions for you. So thank you again for your time. And the session is recorded so you can you know, watch it again if you wanted to get some more insights. Um, Alberto saying thank you so much for the insights here and, and lessons learned, Fred and David. So thank you again so much. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Dedicated On Air podcast. We really hope you'll come back for more episodes. And until then, stay dedicated.